Uh, And if you have a Bible, let's jump straight into uh, the Word of God. Mark chapter 10 this week. Mark 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 31. Mark 10, verse 17 to 31. This is part two in our Reality Check series. We're looking at Mark chapters 9 to 16. And uh, last week we looked at Reality Check part one, which was uh, a word of warning, which was, if you coast... You're toast. Thank you very much. My alliteration there and my rhyming. Uh, If you're a Christian and you are simply just coasting along, then we saw last night the nine of the 12 disciples who came a cropper. So there was warning number one. Today we come to Reality Check Part 2. And I've entitled it, uh, Why Being a Seeker Isn't Enough. Being a Seeker Isn't Enough. We're going to be looking at a young man, a a rich young ruler. Uh, and we're going to look at a guy who in many ways would probably fit on fit in very well here in, uh, in his city church in East Kent. He's a, he seems to be a very nice guy, uh, a very kind of a moral guy, a humble guy, a guy who's earnestly trying to think about the big issues of life. He's someone that, you know, we would like, as it were, to be part of us here today. But we're going to see a very uh, sobering truth today is that as good as all those things are, as good as it is to have internal heart of seeking after God. When he is confronted by Jesus Christ to make an external step to demonstrate his heart to seek after God, when he's asked to actually do something, to obey, he fails. He can't do it. And it's one of those kind of haunting words, but at the same time, hugely helpful for us. It's a reality check moment yet again, where we're going to be going, okay, to follow Jesus doesn't mean it's just about internal thinkings about God. There is, at times, Jesus calls us to, to steps, to tangible, specific, external steps, as it were, that aren't just internal thinkings, but actual actions that we need to make to demonstrate the reality of our love for Jesus and why being a seeker isn't enough, as good as it is. So let's read together from verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honour your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus, come and be with us today. As we look at your word, which Jeremiah calls a hammer, Lord, thank you that, Lord, hard words produce soft hearts, and soft words produce hard hearts. Come, Lord, and just minister to us, Lord, in the moments that we have together. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at three uh, different elements of our passage today. We're going to first of all look at the incident, the incident itself. Then secondly, we're going to look at the issue, what's actually going on behind the words of Jesus. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the invitation. So the incident, the issue, and the invitation. First of all then, let's just spend a few moments looking at the actual incident itself. This young man who, as I say, would have sort of fitted in very well at City Church in East Kent. He, he's obviously a very kind of nice guy. Look at these various things we can conclude. First of all, from verse 17, he's a man, he says, a man ran up. Okay, we think big wow. But actually in that culture, if you were a guy and you had sort of prestige and you were uh, someone of, of notoriety, you didn't run anywhere. Okay, that was seen as beneath you. That's something that kids do. You know, if you're a man, you walked everywhere. But this young man, he's eager, okay? So first of all, we can see he's eager. He's an enthusiast. He's keen and passionate to find out about God. Big tick. Well done, rich young ruler. You're keen. Secondly, we see here, he says, and he knelt before him. Again, this is an extraordinary act of humility. So he's keen, but he's also humble. And I love that. And there's a key here that is timeless. If we want to find out about the things of God, one of the hugest themes in Scripture is humility. And this man, he's, he's grasped it. He's understood that. Fantastic. Second, big tick. And then he says this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Fantastic. He's not only, you know, got lots going on in this life, but he's starting to think about the quality of his life now, but also to come. That's rare. So many people in this life just go through this life without really thinking about what happens after we die. But this young man has a third thing to commend him to us, which is that he's thinking uh, seriously and, and with real earnestness and humility about the life to come. And so not surprising, we see in verse 21, Jesus says this, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loves him. And I just want to say this, and it sounds a bit obvious, but Jesus, he really loves you. Now, you need to fasten your seatbelts, friends, because as we unpack the words we've looked at here, you know, it's going to feel like you're in a wind tunnel, okay? We're going to feel the loving confrontation of Jesus, I hope, because the Word of God often brings that to us. But the context and the flavor is one of love. It really is. Don't miss verse 20, as we, 21 rather, this key element here that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he loves you. So what, what is the most loving thing that Jesus can reply to him? This man who's seeking He's seeking a spiritual life. You know, most people in this world, most people wouldn't say they're atheists. Most people would say at some level they're spiritual. You know, that's, a lot of surveys have been done recently. Most people nowadays would say they're spiritual in a broad sense. Some belief in something out there. And he's like that. He's spiritual in a very general sense. But Jesus here, in response to his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Does he say, go on an alpha course? There's a great one started at City Church. I think, yes, there's still, there's still some space. You can get on that. Talk to Matt Hogg. You know, you'll be fine. You can get on that course. No, he doesn't say that. Does he say, put your hand up at the end of the sermon and repeat after me and you will then be a Christian? No, he doesn't do that. He looks at him and says, sell 
all that you have. Sell it all. Now, is Jesus being harsh? I don't think he is. Is Jesus after his money? Is he after your money? Is that, is that what this is about? Is it really that Jesus was a bit hard up and he was actually after this guy's money? To, say, to state the obvious, the Bible tells us that Jesus was and is God. <laughs> it says that he created all things, that he sustains all things by the word of his power. He, he made the snow this morning. He made the birds in the air. He made the rivers. He made the beautiful things that we see and know and touch. He sustains Pluto. He sustains the universe. He doesn't need this man's money. He doesn't need it. He's after something else. He's after his heart. And he knows that for this guy, for this specific man, the real issue was materialism. The real issue for him was, was, was materialism. You see, one of the two key elements of the Christian faith are faith and repentance. Faith is this trust and belief in God, that God alone can save us, but it must express itself through something called repentance, which is where we actually act upon that and we internally but also externally change our direction in life. We look totally different, as it were. We do different things, we value different things, our lifestyle changes, that's repentance. And that's what this man here we're going to see fails to do. He has some sort of faith in God, some sort of belief, but when there's a, a, a very clear call to repent, tragically we see he fails to do it. Jesus isn't after his money because he needs it. He's after it because he knows. This is the issue here. It's not that if he gave the money, he would somehow then earn his way to becoming a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is testing the love of his heart. Which is the greater love for you? Is it, is it following God? Or is it these possessions? And to prove it, to test it, I want you to give them all up. That's the issue. So I'm not saying here necessarily that every single person here has to do this. I'm saying that when you follow God, there is always, both at the beginning, and you know what? Till the day you die, these kind of moments, these moments where seeking isn't enough. Maybe it is money. Maybe for some of you, actually, this is the exact issue. We're going to spend most of our time on it today. Maybe that is really what God wants to lovingly nail you on today. But it might be something else. It might be your reputation. That was the big thing for me. When I was looking at, into being, becoming a Christian many years ago, I was proudly an atheist and all my friends were atheists and Christians were weird, odd people. And I was just like, I remember like, I, I, it was almost like a physical terror at the thought of having to tell my friends and particularly my older brother who I adore, but has a very different view on life. And I remember thinking, I've got to actually tell this guy. I remember for what seemed like months worshipping, and even back for years probably, and hearing like a little voice of, what are you? doing you idiot my hands were in the and it was just like for me that was like something dying I had to just put that on the altar say Lord I've just got to give this to you I I know that for me to follow you it requires I willingly give this to you maybe it's sex that's a big one yeah it's a big one I remember meeting with a young lady who was just like this guy she was really seeking. She knew her Bible better than most people. She, was, she knew it. She really was earnest. But she had a, a relationship with a guy, um, <clears throat> and they were, had a full-on sexual relationship. They lived together. And, um, and she'd been a Christian for a while. And I was just, so over very, very many months, um, me and her and her, the girl who sort of mentored her, we'd meet up, and I would very gently but lovingly try and say, look, how do you feel? What do you think, what do you think that the Bible tells 
you and me about this. What do you think? And, and trying to help her gently to understand that ultimately there was going to be a cost. She had to, to talk to her, to her guy about this, this situation. It wasn't just okay for it to endlessly go on. And, and I was trying to be as gentle as I could, but also faithful to the word. And in the end, it was the most tragic thing. She just said, but if I stop having sex with him uh, I, and I don't live in the... I, I, he'll walk away. And I need him. And she went away. She went away sorrowful. It's exactly... What's, what's that thing in your life? What's that thing in your life that you know you need to actually give to God? And don't think this is just for when you become a Christian. This is, this is an ongoing journey of love that God, out of love, because he loved him, he whispers again, sometimes he shouts, things that we need to give him. But we, we have to ask ourselves, was Jesus just being a meanie? Was he just being over the top? What's the real issue here? Our second point. What's the issue? And the issue is fairly scary, actually, because Jesus then explains to his disciples why he said these very apparently over-the-top words. He doesn't say to him, you should think about setting up a standing order for Oxfam. He just, you could give everything away. Do you know, do you feel that? Do you feel like that Jesus was like, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't just some sort of, you know, nice guy. He was wildly confrontational in a loving way. And he just said to him, you could sell everything so serious is the situation. And he says this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now his disciples are confused because in Jewish thinking, if you had money, you were blessed. You were loved more by God, was their thinking. You were, what the world thinks is if you're wealthy, you've, you know, you're, that's a sign of great blessing and, and in wealth gets you stuff and gives you stuff and gives you luxuries and holidays and surely, what? What do you mean, Jesus? And so he repeats it. And he says it again. And then it finally even says this, which seems incredible for 20, verse 27. With man, it is actually impossible. He's saying, if you're wealthy, it's actually impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven in and of yourself without the supernatural intervention and rescue of God. There is something about wealth which he's nailing here, which is so scary. So scary. And I guarantee every single person in this room right now is thinking, well, it's a good thing that I'm not wealthy. That's what you're all thinking, isn't it? We all think that because we compare ourselves with David Beckham and Bill Gates or whatever. And the reality is, is do you know that 53% of the world, that's the majority of the world, they live on one pound a day. If you've got any kind of job, you probably earn about 100 times that, if not a lot more than that. The average person in the world would look at anyone in this room who says, I'm broke, and we think you're mad slash it's sick. It's, it's almost a sick thing to say. Billy Graham, famous guy, he said, if you've had a meal today, you're rich. He wasn't just being provocative. He was saying, literally, you're rich. We absolutely have no idea as to the, the part of the world that we live in and the age that we live in compared with the vast majority of this world. We are all unbelievably wealthy and what Jesus tells us here through the Bible and repeatedly is this is if you're wealthy you are a profound spiritual disadvantage turn to the book of Revelation I'll prove it Revelation chapter 3 Revelation 3 this is Jesus talking to a church full of rich young ruler types it's a whole church full of them it's a place called Laodicea and verse 15 he says this he says this to them I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. So what we see here in these few verses are three ways in which riches can easily make us blind. First of all, blind with regards our past. Secondly, with regards our present. And thirdly, blind with regarding our future. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we see here this phrase here in verse uh, 17. Jesus says to them, for you say, I am rich. So they're obviously a rich church like us. I have prospered. Okay, what's he saying there? He's saying your soul, when you think about how you've come to have wealth, it concludes that you have achieved it through hard work and earning it yourself. I have prospered. It doesn't say I've been the recipient of such amazing grace. I have prospered. You know, I've, I've rolled up my sleeves, I've worked really hard, and I've done all I should do, and I've therefore saved diligently, and I have prospered. I am the Lord of my own destiny, is the kind of feel of it. And what he's saying is you are deluded, don't miss this, you are deluded about the reality of the power you have to control your life. You actually think, because of your wealth, that you've effectively brought yourself to the place of wealth and that therefore you're in control of your own life. And nothing could be further from the truth. Wealth blinds us to, as it were, the past track of how we've come to where we are. It can easily whisper to us, you've prospered. You've worked hard. You deserve to be where you are. And it whispers to us a false lie, which is effectively, you are independent. It's what we touched upon last week. You're independent. You're okay. And it's a lie. It's a profound, terrifying lie. Isn't it interesting that, that it says he lacked one thing? She says, you lack one thing. What do you think that is? I think it's a sense of dependence upon God. I think it's that he didn't live ongoingly with a sense of I am needy and I am desperately in need of God to just sustain me for this one more day. That's what wealth does. It blinds us to our past as to how we've got to where we are. It's interesting that the words of this rich young man, when he sees Jesus, what does he call him? He calls him a teacher. He doesn't say saviour. He doesn't say, I know I need rescuing. You're my saviour. He says, you're a teacher. It's more like peer group language. I need someone to help me. I need someone to tweak me. I'm pretty good, but I need a bit of tweaking. I've, I've got most of my life sorted, but there's this kind of moral God aspect, and I need a little bit of a help on that, if that's okay, Jesus. It's interesting, just in the, the Guardian newspaper this week, there were the top five regrets of people who have died, according to a nurse who'd seen this happen a lot. And she said this, the top five were this, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not what others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Those are five tweaks. Your biggest regret is that you'd wish you'd stayed in touch with your friends? Your biggest regret wasn't that you said, is there meaning to this life? Is there a God? And if there is a God, can I know him? And can I get right with him? It's not even on the top five. The biggest regrets of most people dying are tweaks. They're just tweaks. My life's basically okay. I'm not basically that bad. I just need a little bit of a tweak. And this is what wealth and possessions can whisper to us. 
They delude us about the power we have in our life. Tim Keller, he says this about pride, which is really the issue that this man, I think, was struggling with. Is this? He says, pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills us without us even knowing it. This young man was so deluded about his own ability to exist because wealth had blinded him. It made him feel indestructible, made him feel king of his own destiny. That's terrifying, isn't it? I I just feel like every newspaper I read at the moment is someone dying again and again in their prime, in their youth. Someone I half knew. I'm thinking, this is a reminder. This is a reminder. Secondly, wealth blinds us, as we see here, regarding our present. Look at these words here next to it. It says, I've prospered. Okay, so it blinds us to how we've got to where we are. But secondly, and I need nothing was the heart of this church. I need nothing. I'm fine. All right? And then Jesus says, you say that, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable. And these are harsh words, but remember, Jesus loved the church in Revelation. He loved the rich young man. He loves us. He's saying, you honestly think that because of your wealth and your life is comfortable and your life is easy and you've got a bit of God, then you don't need anything. And so this second aspect of riches, they blind us because they, they deceive us about the quality of our life. They deceive us about the quality of our life. When we are wealthy, the challenge is, is that often wealth can kind of anesthetize us at times to the reality of our poverty before God. Yeah? My relationship with God's not great, but my life is so comfortable on an average day level that I kind of numb that until I need nothing. That's what he's saying. And so wealth is terrifying because it allows us to live like the waking dead and just to be like zombies who live through our life without realizing that we are not meant to be designed as Christians, if you're a Christian today, to be living in a lukewarm way. It's, it's, it, God, is, God is heartbroken over lukewarm Christians. He's not ambivalent to it. It's not like, oh, well, it happens to us all. He's heartbroken. He says, you say, I need nothing, and yet you are wretched. Before God, you might have the most designer clothes and the iPhone and everything, but if your soul is lukewarm before God, I love you, but you're lukewarm is what he's saying. And actually you're deceived. You're being ripped off, he's saying. You're being ripped off. You think, I've got a bit of God and I'm kind of lukewarm, but in my life, he's being, you're being ripped off is what he's saying. You're being deceived about the quality of your spiritual life now. And he, and he loves them enough to confront them. It's a bit like if you walk around to a mate's house and he's sitting there watching a TV, but it's like crazy, fuzzy sound all over. And you're like, whoa, what are you doing? He's like, I'm watching TV. And you're like, why are you? That's, that's awful. That's a terrible experience. He's like, well, that, that's what the cable man told me. This is what TV should be like. He's like, mate, you've been ripped off. Your experience of life watching TV should not be like that. It should be like this. Do you see that when Jesus looks down on this church and they're just lukewarm, I've prospered, I need nothing. He's saying you are unwittingly, profoundly deceived about your spiritual life. And, it, and that's what riches can do. That's what riches can do. They anesthetize you at times, to our lukewarm heart and just allow us just to carry on. But thirdly, they also, and this is the most terrifying, (laughs) they blind us regarding eternity. Look at verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, what does he say? Because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out. So you see, riches can blind us to our present. 
And we can just exist, exist in a lukewarm way, kind of liking God, kind of, he's a part of my life. But I'm so comfortable, I've got so much stuff, I don't really feel it. And that's not good for us. But what he's saying is even more seriously than us being deceived is it makes God want to vomit us out. That's, that is haunting, isn't it? Is that just me or is that haunting? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, it's in, sorry it's in the Bible. You know, I'm sorry it's not the nice bit. But I love you. I really love you. And this might be the last sermon I preach. I don't know. And I want to preach the whole council, not just Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. I want to preach what he says to a church who are like the rich young ruler. And he's explaining to us what we do not often hear, which is the antithesis, is the opposite of what the world says about wealth and possessions. He says, I want to spit you out. I'm sorry, but I do. It's just blinded you. And my nervousness is this, if I'm honest. Some of you are going to hear this and feel challenged. And in 15 minutes, you're going to walk out those doors and you're going to forget about it. And you're actually going to change your life. You're just going to go, oh, wow, felt a bit challenged today. Anyway, off to spoons, what should we do? And it's like, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I don't know actually, I don't know what else there is. When I read that the God of the universe might want to spit me out if I'm lukewarm, I feel like, for me, I just think maybe I should take a day of work tomorrow. Maybe I should get on my face and pray. I don't, I, whatever it is, I feel like only you can take responsibility for your own heart before God. And he loves you. And you're hearing this so that you can say, Lord, if this is me, I don't care what my friends do. I do care, but I'm going to take, I'm going to do whatever it takes because I don't want to face you. You cannot leave this life lukewarm. You see, because riches blind us, they lie to us. You know, they, they whisper to us, I'm as important. You know, and, and God, when he looks down, he says, you're telling me you're this little person on planet Earth and I've offered you, at the cost of my son's dying, I've offered you internal relationship with me and you are having to weigh it up between a relationship with the God of the universe and stuff? That makes me want to vomit. I hate that, is what God says. I'm not, I'm not just, I, I hate it. It makes me want to gag, is what it says. And that... My friends, is as the Bible's warning to us about the reality of allowing riches to, to become what they were to this guy. I don't know where you're at with this. You might be really clear on this and clean on it and flying high. And God bless you. Do you know, I need to hear this. I need to hear it. I don't feel like I'm rich. My goodness, I don't. But statistically, I am. And therefore, statistically, I have to say, God, check my heart. Check me. Now, I'm pleased that the sermon doesn't end there. <laughs> All right? Because we finally see that Jesus, in his mercy, in his grace, and in his stunning kindness, he doesn't just go, that's it. Look in Revelation 3. What does he say in verse 19? Those whom I love. There it is again. Those who I'm, I love. I love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And Jesus says in the Mark passage in Mark 10, he says, with man it's impossible, but with God it, anything is possible. Okay, so there's the, there's the hope. There's the challenge. We've got to feel. Don't 
anesthetize, allow it to affect your soul. Okay? But there is the beautiful, wonderful wisdom of God that there is a way by which rich people can know God and grow in God. It's a miracle. Statistically, it's incredibly unlikely, is what this Bible says, but it can happen. And it involves us repenting. It involves us saying, God. And there's three ways that we see in Scripture that we repent, which means to turn in our hearts and then in our lives away from the direction we were going and say, God, I'm going in this direction now. There's three very practical, simple ways. And guess what? No surprise, it all involves your wallet. It involves giving. Give so that you feel your dependency. So this nails that first type of blindness, the past tense one. You have to give so you actually feel your dependency. I'll spend spend a moment on that in a second. Secondly, you need to give so you then receive true riches in the present. And then thirdly, you need to give so that you have treasures in heaven. All right, three ways that we give that deal with those three ways that we become blind in terms of the past, the present, and the future. First of all then, we see here from Scripture a need to give so that you feel your neediness. Because this, as I said, the one thing that this man lacked, and the one thing many people in East Kent lack, is a sense of their neediness. They don't see God as a saviour, they see God as a teacher. They see Christianity as something that's helpful and additional, not as an incredible expression of mercy towards someone who externally might be materialistically wealthy, but actually internally is in desperate need of a loving saviour. We are needy people. That's the pro- His problem was that he didn't know he was needy. And, and God wanted him, and he wants us, to develop our lifestyle of giving in such a way that isn't just logically doable. <laughs> it's so that it makes us feel really scared and dependent. Because you know that you are dependent on God for the next breath that's about to happen. Okay, his mercy is still here. And again? Okay, he's still, he, do you see there is a, a, a delusion that we live in and, and, and wealth just, it just fans it into flame is that we're independent, we can give, and, and when we give in a way that is way beyond what we could logically do, what happens is we feel the reality of our dependence upon God. We feel it again. You see, I don't know if you've ever had um, a friend or someone that you know who's actually quite needy. Yeah, maybe someone, you're picturing someone in your head now and you love them, you, you really love them, but they are quite needy. And they kind of drain you a bit, and it's like, there's a cost to me loving this person, all right? Do you know, you are like that to God times a million. What what do I mean? I'm saying, for God to love you, it didn't just drain him a bit. He had to give his entire son. Do you understand? So the problem with most wealthy people is they see themselves as fairly independent, not needy, independent. And actually, when we give in a way that makes us know our dependence, what happens is we're aligning up with the reality of who we actually are. Totally, profoundly, ongoingly dependent upon God. Do you know, you might have the biggest savings in the world and feel therefore that you're safe and you can rely on those. And what God says is in a, in a, in a, in a second, in a second I can make a bank go under and you lose everything. You are not independent. You are totally, terrifyingly dependent upon God for every breath that you have. And money which whispers to us and deludes us that we're somehow kings of our life is deadly. And the only way through on this is to give in a way that is radical, ongoingly, again and again and again. 
I have a friend of mine who called Phil Moore, who leads a church in Wimbledon. I love this. He says, whenever I give, at like kind of the special offerings that we do every so often, whenever I give, I love to give in such a way that when I, after I've given, I come back to my seat. I don't want to worship. I want to vomit. I love that. I just think, that's fantastic. You know what he's saying? When you've given so beyond what you think you should logically do, you think, oh my goodness, Lord, if you don't come through for me, I am dead. I feel almost nauseous. I remember at the last building offering, um, I preached and I got down and Josie, my wife, and we were chatting, okay, moment of faith, what should we give? And I said, what do you think, honey? And she whispered a figure to me and I honestly, the band were part quite loud and I honestly thought I'd misheard. I was like, <laughs> oh, sorry, I was a bit confused. I thought you said X about it. She went, no, I did. And I was like, but honey, that means we won't really have any savings. Basically, I was like, and I was like, well, what the heck? Let's do it. And so we wrote the check and we threw it in. Do you know what? I felt wild. And I thought, that's why I love you, honey. You're a crazy woman. But do you know what? I so, such a beautiful moment. And it reminded me, I am always 1000% dependent on God. But I just felt it then. Normally I'm thinking, well, I've got this worked out and I'm okay. And it's so insipid. It's so subtle. Do you understand that? God doesn't want you to be feeling independent of him. Yeah, I said this last week. In the world, in, you leave home at 18 and now you're independent. Well done. Christianity is about becoming aware of your dependence. The older you get, you realize, I'm so dependent on you, God. And so as you give in a way where you actually feel your dependence, you realize, ha ha, I'm now so aware of the truth that I'm dependent on you. When I don't give in that way, I just live at this subtle unconscious level where I'm just keeping my guilt at bay. And God doesn't want that. He wants us to grow in this way. Secondly, we then give so that we can receive true riches in the present. So the first deals with how we see our life up until now and our sense of independence. The second, actually, there's a promise here. And we see it in the Mark passage. It says this, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, verse 29, there is no one who has left house, brother, sister, mother, father, or children for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life and in the age to come. That, my friends, is a promise. That is a promise from the lips of Jesus Christ. That if you give, and he broadens it, not just to giving money. If you've, if you've left, you know, relationships and family ties and things that potentially we're going to be a greater love to you than loving Christ. If you've given that, be, be, be expectant that in this lifetime, I will reward you a hundredfold. Now, is he saying, oh, you're going to make me really rich? God sometimes does in his grace as we give. He does sometimes give back. But I'm no prosperity teacher. I think really the heart here is he gives us spiritual wealth, spiritual riches, you know, and I don't think there is a truer, most beautiful, more beautiful wealth in this life than a deep, abiding, passionate, ever-growing, ever-maturing relationship with God. That for me is it. I want that above everything else. And I really mean that. Just the hollow things of this world that momentarily give pleasure and just instantly are boring. Instantly are like not what we hoped they would be. And God wants us to, us to learn this now, quickly. So we don't spend our lives half in one camp and half in the other. He wants us to know that true spiritual return is deep abiding relationship with God. 
and in his family. I love it. Zach- you see um, Zacchaeus in Luke 19. He probably know the story. He's a tax collector. He's loaded. And he, he, he jumps out of the tree and Jesus, Jesus has spoken to him about relationship with God. And he just spontaneously gets it. He's like a million miles away from this rich young ruler who's like, hmm, let's weigh it up. How much do I have to pay to get right with Jesus? He's like, relationship with God? I can have relationship with God? And what does he do? He just spontaneously gives half of everything immediately away. He then says, anyone I've ripped off, I'm going to give back. No, no, double it. No, triple it. No, quadruple it. What the heck? And there's just this fountain as he has, look at what happened. He used to have material wealth and now he realizes he has spiritual wealth. And so that just looks just like a rusty, boring, dead thing. And he's just like, I don't care about that anymore. I've got God. That's what it is. There's only one power that can loosen our souls from the love of stuff. And it's knowing spiritual wealth with Jesus and knowing him. That's why you see in the story of the parable of the treasure. Yeah, The guy who finds the treasure in the, in the field. <gasps> wow, this is amazing. It symbolizes relationship with God. And what does he do? He covers it up. And he sells everything he's got with joy. And he goes back and buys the field. That's a picture of what it is to grow in the kingdom. To enter the kingdom and to grow in the kingdom. It's, it's not that he, he logically worked it out and he thought, I better do this. There's a joy. There's a joy. How do you make sure that you're not deceived about the reality of your present life now? It is about knowing the joy. You know, for some of you, you're lukewarm. I need to pray more. You might do. For some of you, you're lukewarm and you're maybe, it's, I need to read my Bible more. Maybe, maybe you need to give hilariously. That's what this is saying. It's a gift from God. It's gloriously practical. You can actually give, and it's promised, as you give, I love to bless you. I remember being at a conference years ago, and I was just like, oh, I just felt rubbish, to be honest with you. And then this guy got up to start talking about an offering, um, a guy called Stuart Gibbs. And he talked about it in a very relaxed way, just about the joy of it, the joy of giving. And uh, the Holy Spirit just flooded me. And I was like, this is it. I am so locked into trusting myself and and, and, and I wrote, for me, a lot of money on that check, all right? It was a lot for me. And I tell you what, I just, I can't, I didn't pray, I didn't read my Bible, I just gave. And I was like, woohoo, I love you, God! And he just met with me and just came, and I just knew that there was a dynamic, that God was like, well done. You learn to not trust in, the, in, in that stuff. You're learning to trust that I'm, I actually mean what I say. And as you give, it unlocks something, and you become someone who understands that Christ himself, he, I don't think Jesus was rich. Some people try and pretend he was. I don't think he was. You know, his mum and dad were teenage parents and they, when you, did a, when you had a, a child, you then made an offering and they couldn't even do the kind of normal one. They had to do the kind of value range one. Okay, they couldn't even afford the proper one. When Jesus in his teaching um, was making a point, he says, anyone got a denarius, which is like a coin, a day's wage? He didn't even have a denarius. You know, it says though at the same time, the disciples had a money bag that was for the poor. I love that. He didn't have a denarius. God on earth didn't have a denarius, but he, he had a money bag that they gave for the poor. When he was buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Didn't own it. He repeatedly said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm homeless, effectively, he's saying. I don't, know, I don't have my own home. There's something that God's trying to tell us here. <laughs> He's trying to help us to understand that there's a, just an equation in heaven that doesn't 
always add up, as it were, in a logical way. But as, as Jesus demonstrated, is that we can know true spiritual riches, which is relationship with the Father. I think Jesus was the wealthiest, in terms of spiritual wealth, man who ever lived. I think he understood that equation. I think he just understood there's no contest. Anything that could try and tempt my soul away from lack of trust of you, of loving that more than you, look, I just, I think he understood that. You know, there was a guy called um, Giovanni Francesco de Banadoni. Thank you very much. He lives, he was born in 1181 in Italy. His dad was one of the wealthiest men in Italy, and he owned this massive um, uh, cloth and silk trade, incredibly wealthy. And this guy, better known as um, uh, Sir Francis of Assisi to us. He uh, grew up in this incredibly wealthy home, a uh, bit of a playboy. And then he made the stupid mistake of reading Mark chapter 10. And he was undone. And he didn't say, well, that's interesting. I, I'll bring it up at small group and make a tweak about it. He just said, it's just obvious. I am that man. I'm trusting in this. And so he went into his dad's warehouse, filled with all the world's most expensive cloth, and he sold everything, and he gave it all to the poor. His dad was furious, as you might understand, and he dragged him in front of the courts, and he said to him, you, my son, are set to inherit my entire fortune, but because of what you've done, unless you pay back everything you've done, I will disinherit you from that fortune that you will inherit, and I'll just leave you with the clothes on your back. He thought for a moment, and he said, if what you're asking me is something that effectively will become between me and my Christ, then do you know what? Took off his top, took off his trousers, stood there in his pants, neatly folded them in front of a huge public court and gave them to his dad. He said, you can take your fortune and you can take the clothes as well. And he walked out and he started his career uh, where he founded the, Fran the, uh, the uh, Franciscan monk order by begging off a beggar for some clothes, one of the richest men in Italy. He'd understood the principle here. And you can try and say, oh, it's just a way of, it's, it's what it says. How are you doing on this? How are you doing if you know Christ? Is this something that you're through on? Are you right now thinking, this is something that's way too big? I don't know where you're at with it, but I do know that the church has grown by an amazing 80% in two years. That's phenomenal. That means in January two years ago, we had just under half as many people. God has phenomenally grown this church. Our giving has only gone up by 28%. Now, I know some of you are new here and you're probably sorting things out. And I'm, I'm just saying that I think for all of us, there is a reality check. We have to keep saying, Lord, how am I doing on this? How am I doing, Lord? Am I making excuses or am I actually delightfully, joyfully saying, Lord, take everything. Take what I have. So thirdly, then we give, so we receive true riches in the present. But thirdly and lastly, we give, so we receive true riches in eternity. And with this, we finish. Look at these amazing words in verse 26. Jesus says this in Revelation 3, 2 rather. The one who conquers and who keeps my word till, till the end, to him I will... Sorry, no, 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 that's the wrong passage. Very similar to that other one. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 21. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. To the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with him on my throne. What's he saying there? So this is the church, a wealthy church, who are lukewarm and loving it. 
He says, to the, you who conquer, you who apply the word, you who actually don't just hear it, but you do something about it, you who overcome the wide path, Jesus spoke about, the wide and, uh, and broad highway that leads to destruction. Jesus talked about a narrow path. A few find it, is what he says. But you who find that, you who learn, like Sir Francis of Assisi, to give generously all your life and feel the need, feel that dependency. You who learn to overcome, I will grant you to sit with me on the throne. And if you look at Revelation 4, the next chapter, he talks about the throne as the very centre of eternity. It's this extraordinary picture where God himself and all of heaven is worshipping he who sits on the throne. Countless millions upon angels and heavenly beings are all focused on the throne. There's this extraordinary glassy kind of sea that, that, that John, Revelation, sees and it's all around the throne. And he says, if you conquer, for those who conquer, those who learn to actually overcome, I will grant you to sit with me on the throne. Now, we can try and work that out with our tiny brains. Do you know what? I think we'll be doing that forever. It's meant to get your heart. It's meant to fill your soul with a sense of, whatever that is, it's good. Whatever it is, that's scandalous. And I think we can understand, Lord, he's saying, he's inviting us. The challenge is not, insurmountable. The challenge is conquerable. I'll say that again. The challenge is not insurmountable. It is conquerable. That's why you see in Romans, he says, he says, for those who are in Christ, we are, it's your Greek is hyper conquerors, super conquerors. You're able by God's Holy Spirit to conquer the things in your soul that can hold you back. And Jesus lovingly says here, I knock, I knock, I knock. I want you to conquer. Don't listen to the voice that says you're just going to stay the same. Oh, I don't have much money. This doesn't apply to me. No, it's about your soul. It's not about the amount. It's about the amount that is relative. It's about you learning, whatever that thing is. Today we've looked at money, but in our lives there's an ongoing, loving thing that God always comes about. What's the thing? Are there things that you need to give that you're loving more than him? To the one who conquers, I will grant. Come in to heaven, he says, and sit on the throne. It's just going to be mad, isn't it? I can't even conceive of that. But I know that my heart is, my heart is so, Lord. <sighs> Lord, I want to know what it is to have spiritual wealth, true riches. I, a deeping relationship with Jesus. Lord, if, if being lukewarm was just something that was not my fault, just something that I had to go through, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be cross at them. You'd say, oh, you poor thing. You're a victim. He says, it's not, it's not, it's not the situation. You need to repent, he says. You need to be zealous. You need to repent. You need to say, God, what is it? What is it that's causing this in me? And for us who live at such a time as this, in such a place as this, I know what I'm saying is like totally countercultural to what most people in this world think. And some of you may think, you are so over the top, Tom. I'm doing my best to open up scripture and allow it to speak. I'm not trying to add to it. I'm just trying to give it to us in a way that's not patronizing and not softening something that God doesn't want to be softened. He wants to lovingly connect with our souls. Because, you know, if we allow these words to hit us, I'm not exaggerating this, the impact that he could have through everyone here is kind of mind-blowing. I think for some of us, this is the big issue. Martin Luther famously said, we all have three conversions in our life. Conversion of the head, conversion of the heart, 
conversion of the wallet. For some of us, that third conversion has not happened yet. Or it has, but we've got to review it. Because I do believe this isn't just something that's a private issue. It kind of seems to be one of the big consistents in the great men and women who have changed the world. This was something that they all seemed to understand and share. A guy called Charles T. Studd, great name, born in 1882. It's my final story in England. His dad was one of the wealthiest people in England. And he went to, grew up, he went to Eton, then he went to Cambridge, and he played cricket for England. And in 1882, um, uh, everything was going right for him. He was born just a little bit before that. In 1882, he was named Sports Personality of the Year. And he was just flying high. In 1883, he foolishly read Mark chapter 10. And he was totally undone. And he recognized, I can't, I can't just look at this and just kind of go, oh, I have to do something. I have to do something. And he recognized what Jesus was saying is that wealth puts you at a terrifying spiritual disadvantage. You can't be ambivalent about it. You have to go to war on it. Do you understand that? You can't just let it float along. If you coast, you're toast. He's saying you actually have to go to war on it. He understood that. Do you know what he did? He inherited £170,000. Remember, this is like 200 years ago, which was tens of millions. And he immediately gave 90% of it straight away. 90%! 45% of it he gave to India to some of the poorest people. 45% he gave to the poor in London. And he just kept back 10%, 17,000. And he was about to get married. He had a wonderful fiancé called Priscilla. And he said to her, this is what I've done. And she said, oh, Charlie. Jesus didn't say to the rich young ruler, give 90% away. He said, give it all away. Come on. Let's start our marriage with a clear conscience before our God. And so they joyfully gave away the last 17,000 of the fortune. And they started their married life with five pounds. After having 170,000, tens of millions, he gave it all away. He then left this very nation and went to China and poured their life into obscurity. Poured their lives, poor. Hardly even with clothes on their back. And yet they were preaching the riches of Christ. I, I find that incredibly challenging. And my deepest heart's desire is that this room will be full of CT studs and Priscilla studs. Men and women who say, I don't care if no one else takes this message seriously. I'm going to I'm gonna change it. I, I, some of you won't have a lot in terms of relative terms. I understand that. But you are objectively wealthy. And God wants us to shape our lives Remember this, this this is the whole thing is that seeking, listening, hearing, knowing, internal stuff isn't enough. There needs to be obedience. There needs to be steps. There needs to be decisions made. That's what this is saying. And for this young guy, it cost him his salvation. That's terrifying. His love for stuff ultimately led him to walk away. And my passion, my, my deepest heart desire and the best way I can serve you is by saying what this book, which Jeremiah describes as a hammer, that would do its loving work on us.
And I tell you, I've been preaching this to myself. I hope you know that. Because I'm materialistic at times. I love stuff. I just want to build a culture where people look in and go, I don't understand this church. It doesn't make any sense. They're just not in the grip of this thing. Every man, woman, and child I speak to is just different. There's just some culture shift. It's different. They say the words about knowing God, and I've heard Christians say it before, but when I look at their lives, when I look at their wallets, man, they're amazing. Do you know that's what will change the world? It will do. We can talk, 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 and have an apologetic and explain things, and that's good. But when they see a church giving, it's the biggest God of this world, it's money, as we say, it does not control me. I trust in my Redeemer. I trust that when I step out in faith, even when it seems nuts, he will not let my foot slip. Do you know, I, I, I believe God's inviting us onto a new journey. My heart is that, is that all of you will join us. There's something ultimately between you and your, your, your God, your creator. And I just would lovingly say to you, don't let this be a talk which you file. Let this be something that keeps changing us. Amen? I want us to know Jesus with all of our hearts. And if there's anything, and we've looked at wealth today, but there's lots of things. Particularly though, if there's something that still we trust in, still we look to, still is controlling our lives. And, and just to say, it's often not even just money. It's what it pretends to give us. It's the stuff it gets. The sense of control. The sense of security. The house, which on location, location, is amazing. It's just us saying, Lord, just let us walk through this life fearing you, knowing that every day is a precious gift. And I want to live with a contrite heart that says, Lord, where the rest of the world has nothing. God, let me live in that reality. Keep checking my reality, Lord. Let's just pray together, shall we? Lord, we pray it. We pray that you will help us to be those who walk. Lord, whether we're young or old, just saying, Lord, we're stewards. We are not owners. Ultimately, we are renters. Not owners, God, even if you grace us with great wealth, which you do at times. Lord, for those who are graced with that, I even pray now, there is a grace gift for earning great amounts of money. God bless you for it. And I pray my best prayers for you because that's a tough call. I pray that you will be anointed beyond reason <laughs> to never let it grip you. Lord, I love you. And we say we can worship you with a guitar, but we want to worship you with our wallets. We want to worship you when no one's watching and no human will ever know. Lord, with the pennies you give us, the pounds, the hundreds, the thousands. Lord, I pray it. Raise up a radical army who are living, getting ready for that day where we will give an account and you can say, well done. In Jesus' name. Amen.